Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you that we have an Instagram, we have a Twitter, we have a Patreon, and we have a TikTok. But most importantly, we have our hotline. So typically, we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call us or text us the hotline, tell us your story, and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back, Ford Explorers. Uh, I am the Colonel, and this is my son, the Caleb. If it's your first time meeting us, hello. Nice to meet you. Uh, if it's not your first time meeting us, you may be wondering where we've been. We apologize. Been away for a few weeks. Life just kind of got in the way, but it won't continue to happen. Uh, we are back with a barn burner today, though. This is quite the episode. Whew. Yeah, when you get into like the conspiracy talking, we talk about like... Oh, children abductions. Obviously, there's a trigger warning for today. We are going to talk about children going missing, uh, children being physically harmed. Uh, there there will be some very brief talk on sexual abuse, but we're not going to get into any of the details or anything like that. We just have to mention that it happened because it's part of the story. Uh, but before we get into any of that stuff, it's great to be back. It's great to be back for you guys. And first and foremost, as always, before we get into the case especially today, let's do something a little fun beforehand, and let's talk about the ghost report. Yeah, so it's been a while, so I've been collecting stories for the oh, yeah. ghost report. I guess for those who don't know, I own a little haunted bar. Caleb works in that haunted little bar. The ghost, uh, one of the two ghosts, seems to have a pretty profound crush on Caleb, uh, and we talk about it every week. So hit him, Caleb. Yeah, so uh, I took a couple days off uh, in the past three weeks that it's been and all of my coworkers have been like Caleb you're really making the ghosts upset that you're not here <laughs> so apparently the days I weren't I wasn't there the lights just would not stop changing <laughs> which is usually the case when I show up when I pull into the driveway yeah. for work the back lights start changing but apparently since I wasn't there all night, they just he kept having to change them back because as soon as they would change them back to blue, they would just start going random. Uh, for those who don't know, we are firm believers that we have a ghost that we call the lady with the long hair. It's a female specter. Feel free to correct me in the comments if I've said that wrong. Uh, that we see pretty often, mm -hmm. um, and that we have a, a, I don't know if she has a crush on Caleb, that might be a little uh, assumptive, I guess, I mean, I would <laughs> if I were this ghost, but uh, it does definitely feel like the ghost has some affectation to you, because when you show up, the lights will flash, and it's usually like a way to get his attention. Uh, and but they'll turn off if he turns them off, and then so this week they just wouldn't turn off. Well, she didn't. If you aren't in control of the remote, it's not you know. If the ghost isn't getting what it's after, which is your attention, yeah. Some other crazy things that happen. It would have been funny if they would have called. Sorry to interrupt, but it would have been funny if they would have like called you and had you come down and you switch the lights and then they stay <laughs> and then they just stayed there. Yeah. The night. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Hey, Listen, what did I tell you? I'm not here this weekend. I told you to be on your best behavior. I got to be able to take time off. Um, another crazy thing that happened is one of the bathroom door handles. We were just sitting in there. There was no customer uh, in the bathroom or anywhere near the bathroom, and the door handle just popped off the door. Yeah. What? Yeah. Uh, and there's just, like, a little set screw that's inside the handle, and, like... 
it was a little loose, but I mean, you'd still need force to pull that handle off. Yeah, it's a door. It's a door handle. It has to be removed. <laughs> so I put it back on. I I set the set screw, and it's nice and fine on there now. But we were just standing there, and yeah, we just heard ding, 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 and it was the handle pulling off and hitting the concrete floor. Was it the bathroom where she usually is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have this. We have two bathrooms, uh, and what's kind of creepy about them is when I built them, they had to be ADA compliant. That's not what's creepy about them. <laughs> do do not clip that and take that out of context. ADA. <laughs> People in wheelchairs. No, so they have to be bigger because of that. So they're larger. Like the average bathroom is usually, I mean, you know, like bar bathroom. A stall is what, like three, four feet wide? Yeah. Those have to be seven, eight feet wide. So they're pretty big bathrooms too. So they're extra creepy when you're in there because there's room for someone to be behind you, which is like kind of an uncomfortable sensation when you're in the bathroom. Yeah, and that brings me to my next one. Oh, which no. I was in that bathroom. I was uh, urinating, and I... Heard like someone draining the lizard, (laughs) draining the main vein, you know, and it sounded like someone was trying to get in. So I was like, hey, I'm in here occupied. (laughs) Occupado. And I turned around and it felt like like it sounded like someone was jostling the handle trying to hurry me up. And so I unlocked the door and I opened it and I was like, hey, and no one was there. Oh, yeah. You got pranked. Yeah. And the door like slowly opened, which it's kind of on an angle, so it will slowly open, but it also started to slowly close. And I was like, that's not the <laughs> angle that the door sits yeah, on. Yeah, that goes against gravity. That's weird. So those are the big things. The lights kept changing over and over. Okay. And then the last big one is one night when we were trying to leave, uh, we were walking out, and I've talked about it before. But it only happened the once and probably six or seven months ago. But it happened again where it felt like someone was rushing us out. Okay. Like we were leaving, we had all the lights out and we were going towards the back door and it felt like someone was behind us, not really chasing us, but kind of just like ushering us out of the door. Do you think there's a chance that you're initiating a jealous ghostly love triangle? Because we do have another ghost in the building who's like a large male figure who we've all seen as well. And they don't, you know, I don't, this begs. This is the perfect question for this podcast, and I, I beg this to those of you. Please leave it in the comments. Do you think two ghosts that die at different times can fall in love? Maybe. Like, do you think maybe the the big bald guy is like the Green Mile guy, as we like to call him? Do you think he's like? Mm, do you think maybe he has like a thing for the lady with the long hair, and now the lady with the long hair has a thing for you? And he's like, "Get the fuck out of this bar! Get out! Never give come me, back! Give me some alone time with her!" Come yeah, on. exactly. So, do you think you're getting rushed out of the building by a jealous lover? Possibly, I might be. <laughs> I want sixty minutes to talk about this. I want if you are listening to our podcast, you take this to a local news affiliate. I want everybody to know that we have a jealous affair going on between ghosts and our chef, and I'm pretty sure our chef's going to die because of it. I'm in a spectral love triangle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very modern of you. It's a you're gonna. This sounds like a case that we will talk about on this podcast when it eventually when you succumb to this circumstance. I'm gonna have to have the show with somebody else. And we'll talk about what happened to Caleb. Well, thank you for that ghost report. That's yeah, a good one. A it's also kind of a haunting one because yeah, as I just concluded, I think you might die soon. I think I might be killed by a ghost. But yeah. Hey, doing what I love, you know. Hey, speaking <laughs> of people dying, doing what they love, let's talk about a guy killing some kids. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. For that. Everybody just turned the podcast, and that's fine. That's a good joke for everybody to leave on. Today, we're talking about uh, the Oakland County child killer. 
Uh, and it's a case of four missing children mm-hmm. over the course of two years, uh, 1976 and 19, basically between February, the beginning of 76 and the beginning of 77. Yep. These four kids went missing over the course of a year. Now, there are a few things to keep in mind at this time frame. There's going to be some other people that come up during this conversation, like John Wayne Gacy, um, who is probably tied to this case. Uh, keep in mind where we're talking about. We're talking about Central Michigan. We're talking about Detroit. We're talking about the late 70s, early 80s. So that's also when he was at the prime of his killing mm-hmm. um and i say that not to bury the lead but um because there's it, um, i can tell you right now gacy probably didn't do this yeah. but we are going to talk about the people around him and how he was in those circles but i say that to say that again the fear of your child being snatched is a very real one it's just that like i don't know i guess because i grew up in a more rural setting i was allowed to go outside basically yeah. until i didn't want to be outside anymore the dark and stuff those weren't really the rules my parents were very lenient about me going outside you know i had a a bicycle i had a dirt bike i was always out doing something i was never home and it's an interesting idea i have three nephews and my one nephew's 18 uh shout out cole uh and he's getting he's finally getting his driver's license now because his mother wouldn't let him get it for 2 years and it's like Come on, man. Like in Montana, you can get your driver's license when you're like 14 and a half because you can run like tractors and trucks and stuff. So it's like to not have your driver's license is it's a sign that there's a fear, right? There's a fear that something's going to happen to the children. And I think a lot of people out there feel that way. We got a buddy named Chris, who I think is one of the nicest guys around, but he has a very profound fear of what's going to happen to the children. And Today, we're going to talk about what really does happen when something happens to the children. So, as we always do, we'll uh, we'll start this podcast now that we're through the trigger warnings and all the, the upfront stuff. I'll let Caleb start the way that we like to start, which is we're going to talk a little bit about the people before we talk about what happened to them. We like to humanize them. One of the things that kind of is a shitty side effect about the like true crime podcast world is that we like to sort of dehumanize people and yeah. just make them characters in a one hour story but today we're going to talk about these kids a little bit so why don't you start with mark the first kid so mark stebbins uh was 12 years old um he was middle schooler in ferndale and he was known as a really good kid within school he had this leniency to go and explore and his mom was very much like yeah go explore just keep in contact with me and on dude when i was a kid i not to interject here but just as a point of reference like when i was a kid we'd go camping and my family would go camping for like a month at a time Mm -hmm. and i could go out hiking all day i remember distinctly coming back one day and i was like i had seen an albino rattlesnake that day with my friend adam and i came back and i told my dad my dad my dad's only response was oh cool did you kill it (laughs) i was like fucking seven years old (laughs) there was just a different understanding so mark was at the american legion hall he was uh hanging out with some friends there and he was about to leave so he called his mom at 1 30 p.m on february 15th 1976 and he was like hey mom um i'm just now leaving the american legion hall i'm gonna head home and she's like all right see be careful so it's 1 30 in the afternoon he doesn't show up and it keeps getting later and later and later and by 11 p.m mark's mother's like all right, my son's not not home. Which is, you know, and that's an interesting thing too. Like leaving the, um, leaving basically. I mean, it's not a VFW, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like, effectively being with vets and not being safe. Yeah, like, this is going to come up a lot today. It it should help you sort of reassess who is really keeping your children safe. So at 11 p.m., Mark's mom calls the Ferndale Police Department and is like, "Hey, my son said he was leaving the American Legion Hall at 1:30 this afternoon, and he's still not home. I think he's missing." So they put out an APB. They start looking for him. They really don't find anything until 
about 11.45 in the morning on February 19th, so this is four days later, a businessman uh, named Mark left his office building and headed towards a drugstore located inside the New Orleans Mall. Uh, we should have given that a more interesting story because, you know, we, he's... He was sitting there, and he got heartburn and diarrhea at the same time. And he was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Heartburn, (laughs) indigestion, diarrhea. What's in that little song? Diarrhea. Diarrhea. (laughs) We should make that one of our sound effects, just the diarrhea part. So on his way, uh, he was driving down the street, and something caught his eye. And the corner yeah, of the Yeah, we, we discussed this. Yeah. His brown eye. Something caught his brown eye. That's <laughs> terrible because we're talking about him finding a little kid. Ooh. Uh, hey, listen, we issued a trigger warning. We did. We did. We're going to joke about this stuff. Sorry, it's who we are. So what he saw looked like a mannequin dressed in a blue jacket and jeans. And as he got closer, he realized that it wasn't a mannequin, but it was, in fact, a human body. So he... Went to the police and he was like, hey, I found this body. And so the police were like, oh, we need to interrogate and question anyone that's been around. I like how you're saying this like nobody's ever seen a police show. <laughs> yeah. They don't know what happens. So- he found a body. Then he reported to these guys called the police. <laughs> so what the police do. So there was another person in that parking is lot. Is hit their wives. Around 930 that morning. The same morning. And they were walking their dog. And they're like, we walked past that spot multiple times and there was no one there. Like, there wasn't a body there. There was nothing there. So, That's the last thing you want to hear if you found a body. Yeah. Is the cops be like, oh, no, you didn't. Big- <laughs> um, Yes, I did. Yes, I did. No, I didn't put it there. What are you talking about? So that means that there was a two-hour and 15-minute window which someone dumped Mark's body there. Yeah. So it wasn't there at 930, but then it was found at... 11.45. How much of that do you think is cops just being lazy? Uh, probably a lot Because this was the 70s. This isn't even now. You don't think a cop was like, that wasn't there when I was there earlier. It's like, yeah. yeah, it was. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Prove it. Prove it. Yeah, dude. This whole uh, situation, we'll talk more about just the cops being yeah. wildly inept. Yeah, yeah. The cops didn't. We talk a lot. If there's anything, I only am stopping because if there's one thing to take away from a lot of our podcasts in terms of like the safety of your children, know that as far, and this is just statistically speaking, if you are a cop or you love cops or whatever and you want to rip me a new one in the the comments, you'd be my guest. But statistically, what we have found throughout a number of cases, Walter Collins, um, a number of cases involving children specifically. I mean, the Collins case is an especially profound case. I mean, you get your kid fucking disappeared and then you get put into an insane asylum because they're like, no, you're the crazy one. Um, But, you know, the police, what we found is, I know this is going to come as a a big shocker to everybody, but they don't do a fucking very good job of finding anything or anyone. And by all accounts, don't really give a shit to do so. They don't really care that you can't find your person. You know, it's like, Everybody knows that's how they're going to treat your car when your car gets stolen. But, like, when your child goes missing, the ineptitude is profound. And, like, it's what we just saw, not to, I won't go too far, but it's what we just saw in Texas with the school shooting, right? Like, we want to hope that every guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, that he's going to be a hero. And but you got to remember, a lot of people are pussies, man. A lot of them are cowards, and that's not going to change when the push comes to shove. It's going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, soldiers get taught integrity. That's why you get pushed through the school that you get pushed through. Like, that's what basics about. It's about teaching you subordination and integrity while being subordinate. Cops don't really get taught that. So I think sometimes they just run away from shit. Yeah, I mean, it's a little tangential, but I I just told you this story yesterday about where we are. 
um, this 35-year-old lady went missing. Yeah. And her family went to our local police department and was like, hey, she's been gone for two days. We don't know where she is. And they're like, well, does she have any, like, mental disabilities? And they're like, no. And they went, oh, well, she's a grown adult. She'll be fine. And, like, a week later, they found her in her car on the side, like, her crashed Dude, car on the side of the highway. The side of the highway in a crashed car where she had died. No one had checked on her, nothing. She'd been there for days. Yeah. So, uh, granted, we have one of the most corrupt police departments in the country. There's a, <laughs> They just did a whole thing about it. They have been under investigation by the FBI for two and a half years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, the, the police aren't necessarily... And that's not everybody. I think plenty of cops don't. I think plenty of cops become cops to do that, to help yeah. find your missing people and stuff. <laughs> to neglect your missing yeah, people. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> the, yeah. But I think the other ones that, just like anybody, if you get something as a job, you're going to treat it like a job, yeah. you know? So, like, it, whether you're a cop or a, a, I don't know, a clerk at Best Buy, if you walk into that with no passion, you're going to approach the job with no passion. It's only going to frustrate you. And mm -hmm. when you work a job like being a cop, you're going to get really frustrated really fast if you're not passionate about it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry for that tangent about the police, but it's bound to happen when you bring them up around me. So to finish with uh, Mark, um, the they did an autopsy, and they showed that his cause of death was asphyxia by way of smothering. Okay. And the report also showed rope burns on his neck, wrists, and ankles as if he'd been bound. Okay. Uh, which is an important detail to remember. Yeah, for that's later important on. for later. Yeah, I remember that he was bound. So uh, the next victim was Jill Robinson. She was also 12 years old. Uh, she got in an argument with her mother that led to Jill running away from home on December 22nd, 1976. And according to Carol, Jill's mother, the two were arguing about biscuits. Um, Dude, what a <laughs> shitty way to die. What a humbling experience. I, uh, I mean, everybody stormed out of yeah. home when you were a kid. Like, you're like, fuck you, mom, I don't fucking need you. And then you walk out the door and you, and you disappear. So that's pretty much what happened. So Jill was Jesus. asked to help make the biscuits for dinner, but she refused. And so they had a heated back and forth. Me and my cat have the same <laughs> argument. I'm like, make, make biscuits. biscuits. And he's like, Mow. and you're like, get the fuck out of this house. So there was a heated back and forth. And Carol, her mother, was like, fine, just leave until you want to be part of the family. Dude, did Carol kill herself? Because there's like no way. I remember once my dad, when we were moving, my dad was like he told a cat he was like i think my mom said it to my cat after my dad had moved because we moved it's a big story but we were moving at separate part my dad had to go first to do the dad thing and like yeah. get the house and do all the stuff and uh, uh i think it was my dad's cat or something my mom was like my, the cat was being shitty when my dad left because he didn't know that we were going to reunite and uh he was like pissing and stuff and she was like why don't you just fucking leave and never come back and he did <laughs> It broke my heart. He left that morning and never came back. Damn. Yeah, so be careful what you <laughs> say that to. Cat toys and a little handkerchief. Dude, he was just gone. He The cat never went outside and he was just gone. That's wild. He snuck out and was just gone. That's wild. Yeah. So, as uh, Carol yelled at Jill. And <laughs> About was like, the biscuits. If you don't want to make the biscuits, get the fuck out of this house till you want to be part of the family. Uh, and this family, we make biscuits together. Jill went to her room, packed her clothes and a plaid blanket into a denim bag. And before she left, she dressed herself in blue jeans, a shirt, and an orange winter coat with a blue knit cap with a yellow design on it. So she kind of looked like uh, Stan from South Park. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And then she was like, fine, fuck this. Walked outside, got on her bike, and rode away. And Jill was seen by a family friend at a hobby shop on Woodward Avenue, just four and a half blocks away from their house. And was like, hey, Jill, what's up? And she's like, fucking mom being a bitch again. <laughs> and the family friend was like, oh, I know. And Jill kept It's riding. bitch gets time. <laughs> bitch gets. And then. Mom's she... at home making bitch gets and gravy. Dude, bitch tits and gravy. 
It's what we should call fat guy brunch. Bitch tits, tits and, and gravy. gravy. <laughs> My dad sweats gravy. Um, so the next morning, two witnesses said that they saw her at the donut depot on Maple <laughs> Road, which is an even more couple blocks down the road, Okay, which is a 24-hour uh, donut place. So they said they saw Probably her. Probably looking for biscuits. Uh, you should bring them back home as a peace offering. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I couldn't find any. I'm sorry. She's like, I have crowlers. Uh, <laughs> so Bear claws okay? Uh, they were seen between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. Uh, okay. So the day she left. She was seen at 6 in the morning at a donut shop and nobody did anything? They're like, oh. There's, there's yeah, there's like one. It's one thing to let your kids like be out and about. It's 6 in the morning. If your kid is awake at 6 in the morning, something's wrong. Are you at the hospital? Or is it Christmas? Why is your kid awake? Any parent will tell you 6 in the morning, either they're up to no good. It's like having a cat. They're either up to no good or something's wrong. That's no like, kids awake at six in the morning. So there's a kid on her bike at six in the morning at a donut shop. Mm-mm. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to be like, yo, what the fuck are you doing here? Why are you here? Get out. That's just like, uh, I will get you out wherever you need to go. But this is not your fucking 12 years old. Get the fuck out of here. It's like Patton Oswald has a, a funny joke. He's like, if you see someone sitting in a Denny's at five o'clock in the morning, they either just had the worst night of their life or are about to have the worst day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He would know he killed his wife. <laughs> so Jill's parents were divorced and Jill's father, Thomas Robinson made a call to police at about 1130 the night she left. Okay. And was like, Hey, um, Jill got in an argument with my ex-wife. She ran away. I just want you to know that she's out there. I haven't heard from her. Her mom hasn't heard from her in a fully, couple hours. Fully blaming the ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely my ex-wife's fault. I fucking hate her. I want to make it clear. If my kid shows up dead, it's my ex-wife because she's a bitch. So, Jill... Uh, and her biscuits are terrible. A couple days later, Jill was found on the side of I-75. Oh, no. Um, she was lying on her back. I was really on a good joke roll there. <laughs> just, I cut you off. Dude, it's going to happen. It's going to happen two more I times. Know. Yeah. Hey, isn't the joke funny? Dead kid. Uh, she was on her back, fully clothed, not bound in any way, but okay. did have a ring of deep red surrounding her head, uh, and it was blood. Oh, so okay. the killer had transported her there and then shot her at close range with a shotgun. Jeez. Um, but Jeez, man. As they were doing the autopsy, it... Seemed that she was fed and cared for for at least three days. Um, that was about five days between when she went missing and when her body was found. And they found that she was cared for and fed for three days. Uh, she seemed to be washed clean and there was no sign of physical or sexual abuse. Okay. Um, so seemingly just kind of like I get kidnapped, but yeah. not like just regular old kidnapped. Yep. Yep. You just live here now. <laughs> Um, Interesting. Okay, so that's the second girl. Yep. The next one, also a girl, Christine uh, Mihalek. Yeah, I think M- Milich. I don't Milich, know. Mihalek, yeah. Milich. Yeah, we we'll apologize if we got that wrong. Uh, she was 10, and she was reported missing on January 2nd of 1977. So the last one was late December. This yep. is now early January. Um, she failed to return home from a 7-Eleven down the street from her house in Oakshire. Okay. And police said there are no signs of violence when they found her body. There was very little known about her. She really wasn't the same age, wasn't in the same M.O. Um, but she went missing, and two days later, she popped up. Police said there were no signs of violence and that she was in the same clothes she was last seen in, also seemed to have been fed and taken care of, and that she was found on her back with her knees drawn up 
and a Franklin Village mailman by the name of Jerry Wozni saw her on his route. Uh, he had the same route for 22 years. Damn it. <laughs> um, he was driving. Mailman got it bad enough, man. He was driving, and he saw the body, so he, he made it to the closest phone, called the police, and the police showed up. And State Police Sergeant Robert Robertson. Hey, there we yeah, go. Great name. Bob Robertson. <laughs> Bob Robertson supervised the removal of the girl's body. Okay. And after this discovery of her body, he was like, hey, this is very similar to that girl we just found in December and that boy we found earlier in the year. Are these connected? So he got a task force together. They started looking, and they're like, hey, we think there's a serial killer in the Oakland County area. So this is the victim that caused it to be like... Which, bear in mind, at this point, Gacy had been killing throughout Illinois, Michigan, and Minnesota for years yeah. by now. <laughs> um, they're like, hey, there's a serial killer. They sent out this uh, warning. They're like, <laughs> they, like, send a warning to Milwaukee. They're like, hey, there's a serial killer. And like, yeah, yeah. We know. Yeah, the, we've been dealing with him. The clown guy? Yeah, we know. We're working on it. Is it a clown guy? No, this person just, like, picks up kids, feeds them, cleans them, and then kills them. He's like, oh, <laughs> fuck. You guys got a... That's a literal groomer. I wonder if this was Ezra Miller's grandpa. <laughs> God. Dude, I have a... I think she's, like, a, a niece. I think she's a niece. We have a lot of extended family but i think she's a niece and she lives in hawaii and i want to be like be careful <laughs> be careful there's a they them coming for you so the michigan police uh, state police led this group of law enforcement officials from the 13 communities to form a task force okay whose sole devotion was to investigate the killings of these three children understandably so this task force they're like we have a serial killer they put out a warning across uh, oakland county of like hey there's a dude snatching up your kids leave your kids inside lock them up i don't care yeah um just keep an eye on your kids there is a serial killer and that brings us to timothy king our uh last victim who his family is also kind of integral in moving this case along yeah. as well. Yeah, his father specifically. Yes. So Timothy King was 11 years old, and he left his Birmingham home on March 16th, 1977. Again, just to clarify, this is around the Detroit area. Yeah. I know we keep, like, Oakland County, Birmingham. I know these all sound like we're talking about different places in the country. They're Detroit. all around Detroit. We're in Detroit. <laughs> yeah. It's Birmingham, Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> the other Birmingham. The other, other Birmingham. So he left home on March 16th, 1977 with 30 cents that he borrowed from his older sister, Catherine, and headed to the corner store. And his family was out at the time. He wanted some candy, and it wasn't rare for him because it was just a three-block trip. He made it all the time. Totally, yeah. I mean, dude, when I was going to, uh, when I, I used to walk to school every day when I was in elementary school. I would walk to school every day, and that trip's probably about eight blocks, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's probably a little far. But there was a corner store from my elementary school uh, that had, you know, probably the same thing he was after, which is like nickel candy. Yeah. And I would go in there and get Laffy Taffy's and shit after school. Like me and my friends would go all the time. My parents wouldn't think twice about it. So he grabbed his skateboard and his football, and he headed towards the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. Dude, this is the most American shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what's how's he gonna carry anything? In his pockets, I guess. <laughs> so, Tim, his whole family was out of the house. He had two older brothers. They weren't around. One was babysitting a neighbor's kid, and the other one was at school rehearsing for a school play. Okay. And his parents were out to dinner near in a nearby Birmingham restaurant. And the clerk at the pharmacy, her name was Amy Walters, sold Timmy the candy and saw him leave out the back door into the dark uh, at about 8.30 p.m., Okay. 
And while he was at the corner store, his older sister, Catherine, also left home. So he was coming back to an empty house. Heard. So he left the corner store at about 8.30. His parents get home about 9.30 to a completely empty house with the front door open. Oh, shit. Yeah, and there's no sign of Tim. So they're like, oh, shit, our son got kidnapped. They called his friends. Well. (laughs) They're like, they look for him all day. They call his friends. They're like, is Timmy with you? And they're like, no, Timmy's not with us. They call the local task force and they're like, hey, what's up? Uh, we've been searching our, for our kid, and they. this is 9.30 at night. They continue searching until 9.15 in the morning. Oh, man. So they are going door to door. They checked the donut people. shop? They did not check the donut shop. Um, the next day, Chief Tobin called the task force. Their local police chief called the task force and was like, guys, I hate to say it, but I think we have another, another kid. And so the task force goes. They do a whole uh, involvement. They searched door to door they looked at this built uh building that had recently burnt down to see if anyone was being kept there they still can't find timmy king Uh, this is very this is probably just because it's been on our minds because we watched it this week but we watched the black phone shout out Mm -hmm. the black phone by the way great movie great movie yeah really really fun um but uh that reminds me of that. Yeah. For those who don't know, there's two houses that are used in that. Spoiler. A minor spoiler. You don't really know it. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, it's not a plot point that matters until the moment you learn it. Um, so they keep doing door to door searches. They're in, they're questioning all the classmates. They're like, does anyone know where Timothy is? And no one did until March 23rd, 1977, where he was found on a dirt road. Uh, a short distance away from a very busy intersection, a motorist actually found Timmy. Uh, he was dead in a ditch, wearing the same clothes he had on when he left uh, for the pharmacy. He also was clean and fed, so similar MO. And about 15 feet away from his body was his skateboard. Heard. Um, so they were like, yep, it's got to be another victim of the Oakland County child killer. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that the MO all fits, right? So, shortly after he disappeared, as authorities are going door-to-door questioning people, a woman told authorities that she had seen a boy with a skateboard that looked very similar to Timmy. Could have been Timmy. They're pretty sure it was. Talking to a man in the parking lot of the pharmacy. It was was either Timmy King or Bart Simpson. In that pharmacy that he disappeared from, she said that she saw him talking to a man in a car. Okay. Um, A composite drawing of the suspected kidnapper and his blue AMC gremlin were released. He is a kind of gaunt man with a sharp chin, sideburns, and wavy hair. Um, They canvassed the entire Oakland County for every gremlin owner. No gremlin owner matched what that uh, guy looked like in the sketch. And like I said, he was 25 to 35 with a dark complexion, shaggy hair, and sideburns. Uh, They believe this is the official statement that they put out. They're like, this is the person we're looking for. They believe that he has a job that gave him freedom of movement and made him appear trustworthy to children, was familiar with the area, and could keep children captive for long periods of time without rousing neighbors' suspicions. I mean, that's the perfect cover. That is the official statement that they put out. Jeez, okay. So now we're looking for who somebody who fits this. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now that we know what's happened, those are the four children that have gone missing over the course of the year. No, who is this person? What's happened? Is it John Wayne Gacy? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so we have quite a few suspects. 
Um, and this is the section of uh, the podcast where we theorize. Yeah, well, this person's never been caught. Yeah, this is an open-ended mystery. So uh, we, first we'll talk about what is the most, we like to do it, uh, Occam's Razor. You know, what is the most likely uh case who's probably guilty who's probably culpable for what happened all the way down to uh my end of things which is where i try to explain that i think it was probably part of a larger conspiracy and i think that's the case today too and you guys are gonna get an earful about it but we'll wait <laughs> so to run down our suspects slash theories each suspect is its own theory so yeah. just keep that in mind yeah uh, we'll start with theory number one suspect number one archibald edward salone yeah archie sloan so Archibald Edward Salone became a person of interest after hair samples found in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville matched hair found on the bodies of Timothy King and Mark Stebbins. So there was mystery hairs in this car that were also found on the bodies when the bodies were found. The hair was not from Salone himself, though. That's the interesting part. It was from somebody else who was in his car. Yes. So a witness claimed uh, a different witness other than the one that came forward about him talking to a man in a gremlin in the pharmacy parking lot, said that she saw King abducted by two men, one being described as in his late 20s, and the other described as bearing a strong resemblance to serial killer John Wayne Gacy, <laughs> who allegedly was in Michigan around the time of the killings. Yeah, he was. So what they did is they ran his DNA... They had some of his DNA from a previous crime scene. They ran it against this hair sample. Also not a match. However, while it didn't match the hair that was found on the victim's bodies, get ready for something that's going to blow your fucking mind. It did match DNA that was found in that car. Mm -hmm. So, while Gacy may not have killed those children, he was in that car, which puts him as a friend. Because this is, this is 1977, guys. It's 1976. It's before Star Wars came out. There's no Uber. This guy's in a fucking taxi driver. Yeah. If you're getting a ride, there's a reason you're getting a ride. If you're getting a ride, you probably know that person. Yep. Which means that fucking Archie Sloan at some point was driving John Wayne Gacy around. Mm -hmm. Why was he driving John Wayne Gacy around when John Wayne Gacy wasn't from that state? That's yeah. my question. If uh, the guy's from the neighboring Illinois, what the hell is he doing in Michigan? So, And why is he with a guy who's very closely connected to children getting abducted? We'll get into that in just a second. Uh, forensic DNA tests, of course, weren't that big back then, but as time went on, and this remained a cold case, in 2012, they finally got those hair samples. They got hair samples from Gacy, and they got hair samples from Archibald Sloan himself. They ran them all, and they definitively said, neither of those two men are the hair samples that were found on the victims, but yes, both of their hair samples were in that car. Now, so that indicates that, okay, so maybe these two men weren't the ones who killed at least King, right? Yep. Where the hairs found, and Stebbins, the first and last victims, the two male victims, which yes. is also interesting, mm -hmm. um, especially because they claimed that the female victims had been, uh, you know, so clean and fresh. Yes. And that the male victims had DNA and stuff on them. I think that's a little interesting. But while the... The DNA doesn't necessarily match what's on the bodies. It doesn't match what's in the car. So that means that the car is probably an accessory to this murder in some way. Mm -hmm. Whether it was uh, not Archibald Sloan and whether it was not John Wayne Gacy. We know that they knew each other. And we know that they were in the same car. And we know that this car had DNA that was found on these dead bodies that doesn't belong to either of these two yeah. men. So who the fuck does it belong to? And who's their third buddy? Yes, there's a third mystery man. In the, in in the immortal car. words of the now 
deceased Scott Hall, who's the third man. So the task force checked more than eight thousand or eighteen thousand tips. So many tips were flying in. They're like, well, yeah, no shit. I mean, like, I mean, I don't, but that's yeah. kind of like why we're doing this podcast yeah, today. Yeah. Like, all the fucking the Pizza Gate shit. Like, yeah, no shit. There were probably so many people who were like, oh, finally, I'm gonna tell them where they took all the children. So the interesting thing is, not to interrupt one more time, but it's got to be very frustrating to work a case like this. I'm saying. It's got to be really frustrating to work a case like this <laughs> because impeccable time. <laughs> yeah, truly impeccable. Thank, I think that might have been the ghost. Thanks, Antoine. I appreciate you. Um, because you're like, you want to do your best to try to help people, but like, you're going to get so many comments that are like, they're hiding in the pizza place yeah. basement. It's like, no, I want to try to help these people, man. What are you doing? Imagine being. Shut at, up! Being it back then, too. Like, you didn't have the. You had some anonymity of just calling in yeah. to a police station, but you couldn't just, like, leave a comment. No. On my, so you had to call in and be like, uh, I think I know who did it. And you're like, yeah, it's Ch- Charles Entertainment Cheese. <laughs> it's like, it's like, Gary? Gary, is this you? What? No. 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 <laughs> no, sorry. And it just hangs up. So the task force checked over 18,000 tips. And while they were mainly useless, some of them did come up pretty useful. In they resulted in about two dozen arrests on unrelated charges. Yep, this is where we get into the other thing. And the discovery of a multi-state child pornography ring operating on North Fox Island in Lake Michigan. Yep. So uh, we found out about all this case because we're pilot boys. And one of our fellow pilot boys was talking to us about this airstrip made of dirt that's on this creepy island uh, back where he's from. Mm -hmm. And that happens to be North Fox Island. So we looked into it and we were like, well, what the hell is North Fox Island? And it turns out the North Fox Island has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of claims there. There's a claim that there's treasure buried out there. There's a South Fox Island where there's, of course, also treasure but more than anything else there was a prolific and very real child trafficking and pornography ring running out of north fox island now i know that what i just said is 100 going to get this podcast buried by youtube so if you do like this podcast please do share it because there's no way it's going to show up in any sort of algorithm but it happened. It's true. As much as we don't like it either, we're not fucking fond of this. There was, unfortunately, a child pornography ring that was operating off of North Fox Island, and it was discovered during this investigation. Now, we bring it up for a couple reasons. One, we should probably do our own episode just on this wild fucking island, but it's kind of heavy content to yeah. talk about so much. Yeah, we were already hesitant about this episode being a little too heavy. Yeah. And so talking about North Fox Island as a whole episode, we figured, eh, maybe not, but it's maybe. A li- it's a little much, but yeah. Yeah, so North Fox Island was an island that was started by Francis Sheldon, who was like a land developer and author, but he was a geologist more than anything else, and that's how he wound up with the deed to that land. Mm-hmm. Um, and he brought in a local um, gym teacher. What was his name? What can I think of his uh, name? Gerald Richards. Yeah, Jerry Richards. Sorry. Uh, Jerry Dix. Yeah, he brought in Jerry Dix, um, who I'll put a picture of right now uh, up on the podcast. Looks Exactly like the description of the guy who stole the kid. Oh, listen to me. To the kidnapper. That first witness's account of what happened, he looks frighteningly similar. So Jerry Dix was a local Catholic school gym teacher who Sheldon used as a procurement tool. He used him as a recruiter to get kids from the schools. Um, They had a... um, uh, it's like a boys retreat. It's got an yeah. incredibly problematic name, and I don't know how anybody didn't see this as what it was. Yeah. So uh, Sheldon bought North Fox Island from the state 
of Michigan in 1960, the entire thing. Yeah. He had more money than they did willing to spend on this island. He's like, I want that island. And he built uh, Brother Paul's Children's Mission was the name of the company. That's what it is, yeah. And the camp that they opened was Brother Paul's Nature Camp. And the thing to know about that is that all of that was like an Epstein-level cover-up for child pornography ring that they were shooting out there. Yes. There are first-hand accounts from men who went out there, and this is his... This is all we're going to talk about it. But there are first-hand accounts of young men who are basically told by Jerry Dix, hey, you're good at basketball. You got nice legs. Do you want to go in a plane? And the kids were like, oh, fuck yeah, I'd love to go in a plane. And all of the survivors that that made it out describe it as they would land, and within an hour, they were mysteriously naked and on a beach. Yeah. Uh, And that's how it was out there. It was a very, 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 very bad place. Um, And as time went on, Sheldon and Richards actually started offering their return customers that were buying the pictures and videos to actually join them on the island. And that's where the stories get way more horrifying. Yeah, we're not going into any of that stuff, but you know know what happened. And that's when uh, kids started to speak up. So search warrants and arrest warrant for criminal sexual conduct were issued for Sheldon in 1976. Um, But Sheldon already uh, apparently cleared out his Ann Arbor home and the cabin on North Fox Island because a couple months earlier, uh, Jerry Richards got arrested. Yeah. For criminal sexual conduct charges. Well, Jerry had a bit of a, a trail, too. So Jerry screwed up because Jerry Dix had been, uh, he worked in an adult bookstore mm-hmm. in college, which there's no big deal there, you know. Like, And don't get me a lot wrong, things have definitely, uh, an important thing to know about the way that we stigmatize sex, things have changed a lot over the years. Adult bookstores aren't what they once were. And don't get me wrong, it's not like they were seedy hives of terrible things. They weren't. But it was harder to find certain things. Yeah. The internet has definitely made certain things uh, safer, and it means that most of those places are, you know, we don't even really have penny arcades anymore because people will just hop on the internet and do the same thing. You guys got to remember, there used to be a time where you would publicly go into a shared room with stalls, and you'd masturbate with other men to somebody dancing. Like, the levels of vice and the way that they have changed. I know, that's really gross. Uh, The levels of vice and the way that we've changed how we take them in. That's there's been a lot of change, even just from the seventies. Yeah. So there when, was a time when you could go into a movie theater and, and jerk off with Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, "Look out for the cops." That poor guy. What a terrible thing to get busted for. That's what that theater's for. It's for jerking off. Do you they think were, the police shine the flashlight on him and he was like, <laughs> <laughs> "The," I think he was coming on the talking chair next to him. That's probably what it was. But yeah, so there's like you know these. <laughs> why is it that that should be a Fortnite dance? You know, the little Pee Wee Herman dance. No, not the masturbation part. Tequila. Tequila. That was gross. Yeah, so, you know, I think there's like a... Fuck, what are we just talking about? There's like a... There was some, like, very real bad shit that was happening out on this island. We'd start making fucking jokes. But it's because, you know, like, this guy... It did have a history of working in a slightly seedier place, you know, working in a adult bookstores when he was like in the 50s and the 60s and even in the 70s. That was a seedier place to be. Let, I mean, you guys don't know this, but uh, Times Square used to be a real fucking hellhole of just pure vice. That's all that it was. And 
Giuliani's a piece of shit. He is. Every, I mean, everybody's seen that. He's a melting piece of shit. <laughs> but a lot of those campaigns did help reform a little bit of Times Square and move some of the vice around, which has helped. Yeah. Uh, despite what some people might say, it has definitely helped. Because when you have tourist families and shit coming to town, you don't need them to walk right in front of the sex theaters right away. Is it? Should it exist? Yeah, of course. But it doesn't need to be the first thing everybody sees, and it doesn't need to be the icon of your city either. Yeah. So I think that the way that we approach that sort of stuff, now if you walk into a sex shop, I mean, unless it's like one of those ones in Missouri, the lion's dens that are like right next to a truck stop, yeah. it's pretty safe. And it's just going to be dildos and porn and normal ass shit. It's going to mostly be lube and dildos. That's yeah. like what most of those stores are. So like things have changed. Yeah. When Jerry Dix was working in one of those stores, he was procuring photos and weird shit for people. That's how he wound up working on a child porn island. I just want to make it clear that we're extremely sex positive. Sex stores fucking rule. And when we're talking about him having a reputation because he worked in one, it's because they used to be different. Yeah, he, he used to, like, put cryptid ads in the newspaper um, that was, like, looking for someone to watch my son. Contact me here. And the person would mail him a letter or, like, a postcard to the bookstore, and he'd be like, sick. And he'd, like, grab child porn and mail it back to that person. Yeah, so this guy was, like, a, a well well-accomplished, we won't say well-known because that's not how it works, but he was a well-accomplished child pornographer. And, guys, he was the gym teacher at a Catholic school, and this is a Catholic island. Yeah. I want all that to be very clear when we're talking about who's trafficking children and what's happening to them and under what guise. Because I didn't bring it up at the beginning, but we all know what organization has actually hurt and trafficked more human beings, including children, in the past thousand years than any other. So, search warrants were put out for Sheldon. It's the Catholic Church. This isn't riddle time. It was. It's the Catholic Church. In 1976, but he had already cleared out his home in North Fox Island and supposedly fled to the Netherlands, which at the time rarely extradited those warranted for crimes in the United States. Um, he was reported dead in 1996, but some think he may have established a new identity and continues to operate as a pedophile. Yeah. He'd be I like mean, 80 or 81 today. I have a feel. I, I doubt he's still alive, but I don't think he died in 96. I think he probably... Probably kept going. And then uh, Jerry Richards spent life in prison and died Jerry of a heart Dix. attack in the 90s. Jerry Dix. His name is Jerry Dix. <laughs> so this kind of, while this is the second theory, both of these men kind of get cleared up. Yeah. Because they were already either out of the country or in jail in mid-1976. Yeah, and the also the like callous thing to say is that they weren't murderers. They were pornographers. Yeah. Um, they... I don't think that it was in their best interests to murder anybody. And also they spoke, um, there's been a lot of survivors and none of the survivors talk about it. It was very much handled like it's so religious because they treated yeah. it like a normal thing that everybody goes through. Like you're lucky to get to do this. So I don't, they didn't really seem like they were trying to hide too much. Mm -hmm. They were just convincing everybody who was doing it that it was fine. Yeah. But that being said, that being said, we've already set the sort of, context here that there are definitely people in this area that are killing kids yep. and if you were in the kid killing business you might know a thing or two about child porn and I'm definitely just drawing those two dots together those are mutually exclusive you wouldn't necessarily know about one if you know about the other um, but I'm not really worried about hurting either's feelings right now so I'm gonna say that if you were uh, into killing kids or into uh, having sex with kids or thinking about it those impulses aren't that different and I have a feeling that you might have a difficult time not over in the streams see John Wayne Gacy yes so in that case 
I don't find it hard to believe that if you knew this camp existed, you wouldn't just go up there and occasionally graze. Like the gross thing about this is when we talk about human beings, humans, What's interesting when we talk about, especially nowadays with children, children uh, being in danger or being trafficked, it's usually religious people that let, like to talk about it. Yeah. Well, what religious people forget is that their religion is made up and that we're actually mammals. And because we're actually mammals, we behave like them sometimes. Yeah. So as much as we might want to say that the world is a safe place, and it largely is, when you ostracize individuals for being weird, you force them into a hole and you force them into darkness and you force them into places like this. Yeah. You make these monsters. They fester. Yeah, because you make these monsters by telling them they're wrong, never, never giving them an opportunity to talk about why they might be wrong or what that might mean and where that goes. So I think you end up with like, I think it makes sense for people to be afraid of these issues, sort of afraid of a wolf picking off the, the lamb. But like, you got to realize, is that a wolf or is it just a really fucked up lamb in wolf's clothing? Yeah. Like, did you just treat a lamb so poorly that that's how they behave now? Did you ignore their pain and their agony? Like that scream we heard from the ghost earlier. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. did you ignore that? Is that why they're like that now? Yeah. Uh, that brings us to uh, my third suspect slash theory. And the Michigan State Police started really focusing on sexual abuse charges, as they should have. Yeah. And caught wind of Gregory Woodard Green. So Gregory Green was a 27-year-old unemployed Little League coach, which... Come on. <laughs> if that's not, I'm a pedophile. I'm sorry, but unemployed Little League coach, isn't that... Don't you become a Little League coach because your son or daughter plays? You know, which like, one's yours? Haven't decided yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Tequila. <laughs> so he was arrested in 1977 uh, for molesting a boy in Flint, Michigan. Okay. I was about to laugh. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And as Green was being interrogated, he admitted, he was like, I'm a pedophile, but I'm not a murderer. <laughs> see? 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 This is what I was just saying. They get insulted by the insinuation. <laughs> but he also threw his buddy Chris Bush Which does mean, yeah, which does mean that if you get mad in the comments, you're outing yourself as a pedophile. <laughs> if you're a pedophile and you get mad at us making fun of pedophiles, ah. Offended pedophile <laughs> says what? <laughs> um... So he threw his buddy Chris Bush under the bus. Well, he's a pedophile. He's not a man of integrity. Alleging that Chris Bush killed Mark Stebbins, the first victim in the killings. There we go. So he was arrested for molesting. And arrested like, for molesting. And he's like, I'm a pedophile, but I'm not a killer. But my buddy over here is a pedophile and a killer. And he killed that first kid you guys are looking at. Whew. So... Chris Bush was somewhat of a public figure. Yeah. Uh, he was the son of General Motors executive Henry Bush. Yep. Of that Bush family. Yeah, yeah, same Bush family. So Green said that Bush... And Not the... Actually, we should clarify. The SCH Bush family, like Anheuser. Yes. Like the family whose money built most of the Midwest, including <laughs> Detroit. Not as in the dumbasses from Texas. Yes. Um, so Green said that Bush and himself had planned to abduct and molest young boys. And he added that they searched for boys in Ferndale... Royal Oak and Berkeley, Ooh. which are the three locations where the first three victims were abducted. Yep. So Bush, on the other hand, he gets brought in and they're like, hey, we have some serious allegations against you. And he's like, listen, I'm a pedophile, but I'm not a killer. <laughs> what a what a defense. That's what we should call this podcast. This episode's called I'm a pedophile, not a killer. So both of them uh, took a polygraph test of Harry, you pedophile. Yes cleared hey are you a killer no cleared guys we're in a we're clearly in the nonviolent branch of nambla and so both of them and the passed. cops were like nambla on <laughs> uh neither of them were investigated any further green pleaded guilty and received life in prison 
What the fuck? Yep. What the fuck, dude? How mad would you be if you and I went in for the same crime? And I was like, you know what? Honestly, that wasn't that bad. I kind of got out of it. How'd you do? And you're Life like, in prison. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, so Bush, Chris Bush, was released on probation. <laughs> and the other dude's rotten in jail forever. He's like, hey, man, I molested a kid. Cool, life in prison. Hey, man, I molested a kid, but my dad runs GM. And they're like, probation. <laughs> probation and six new Camaros, please. <laughs> yeah, so they said to this day, it's unclear why they received different sentences for the Six new charges, Camaros, please. But some believe it was because of Chris's father. Six new Camaros, please. <laughs> so two months after Bush's release, Timothy King, the last victim, was abducted. Okay. So... Timothy King's father and brother heard about Gregory Green alleging that Chris Bush murdered the first victim, Mark, and wanted police to pursue Bush, even though he was cleared as a suspect. But Timothy's father was relentless, and since Bush was still on probation, they're like, fine, we'll look into it. So on November of 1978, they show up to the house of Chris Bush. They knock on the door, the door slightly opens, so they go in, and what they find is not what they were expecting. <laughs> What they find is Chris Bush dead inside his apartment. Uh, the scene of the crime was really weird, though. Yes, it was. So there was no gunshot residue found on Chris, and no blood spatter was found around him. Yeah, he was. So he was tucked into bed. He was, he was tucked into bed. in his bed, tucked in, tucked in, tucked in. He was tucked in. Uh, he had a bullet hole between his eyes with no, as you mentioned, no, no gunpowder gun uh, no residue, blood no blood splatter. Which for those, I mean, you guys are true crime fans. Listen yeah. to this. You know what that means. But that means that that gun was not fired right here. It means it was. That bullet was fired from significantly further away because it means that the 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 reason that happens for those of you who don't know is you're you know what if you shoot something point blank the gunpowder discharge is going to burn your skin from wherever you shoot yourself. Uh, he didn't have that. He didn't have that, which means he didn't shoot himself point blank. It means that he shot himself. And you, I mean, that's also like I'm saying that you you'd have to be further than socially distant. Like yeah, at least six feet away. Yeah, for that for there to be no gunpowder residue. There were four spent shotgun shells in his house. None of which matched the second victim who was shot with a shotgun. Yeah, they weren't the caliber or the same shell that shot Jill. But they were the ones that shot him. Yeah. Because it was a slug, and it went, which that would eviscerate a head if you shot point blank with a slug. And the big things, there were bloodstained ligatures were found in his apartment, which, if, if you, you guys remember, remember, Mark Stebbins had uh, ligature marks, bloody ligature marks around his wrists, ankles, and neck. And there was a hand-drawn image of a boy closely resembling Stabbins screaming, which was found pinned to the wall. To me, all of this feels like a message was being sent. The last bit of incriminating evidence was there was a car parked in his driveway, which was a blue Vega with a white stripe. Oh, for those who don't know, a Vega and a Gremlin, one's a copy of the other one. Yep, the, so the if that witness, Gremlin is a copy of yeah, the Vega. Yeah, yeah. So witness saw Jerry Dix and John Wayne Gacy getting into the car that was parked out front of Chris Bush's house. Yes. So when we say that it seemed like there was kind of a gang of droogies going around picking up kids and killing them, it's pretty clear there was, and it's also important to know because I think when we talk about this stuff, it's very scary. And when you think of the boogeyman, you think of, you know, like, who is the boogeyman? Why does the boogeyman function? The scariest thing about the Halloween movies is that we don't know why Michael Myers functions, Rob Zombie. That's why they're scary. Could you please stop telling us why he functions? And that stuff is scary. It is somehow less scary when it's a group of people. Yes. When it's a group of people, it feels like 
oh, that's cult activity. Oh, that's gang activity. Oh, that's cop activity. Oh, it's, it, we're all used yeah. to this. So it's a group of people, like-minded people, living in their confirmation bias. And it feels like there was an entire group of these men who were kind of cruising through the tri-state area, picking up children and murdering them. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as one got picked up for being a chomo, he throws another one under the bus who is closely related to this guy who procures for a child pornography ring and John Wayne fucking Gacy, who all share DNA that are in this other guy, Archibald's car. Like there was clearly a group of these individuals who all knew each other and all functioned in the same way. the question is, did they exclusively work for like Jerry Dix and Sheldon at North Fox Island or did they do more? And I think they did more. I think Gacy shows us that they did more. It honestly feels more like what we don't know is that there was a cult of people following John Wayne Gacy around doing the same thing. This case is illuminated that it feels a lot more like Gacy was a cult leader murdering children and he had a handful of dudes following him around doing the same thing because that's what this feels like. It looks like Chris Bush was one of his buddies who had the money to probably afford the stuff they needed and he was suicided because he was, guys, let's be honest, he was suicided. And if he was suicided, who did it? Well, probably somebody who didn't want him to fucking talk because he, the cops were at his door because the other guy flipped. So guy number one flips and Gacy and Jerry Dix, Jerry Dix is already in jail. So like Gacy's got to start sweating and he's like, okay, well, I can't have any more loose ends. I don't find it entirely unbelievable that Gacy killed this guy. So we have all these different coincidental pieces of evidence that's like this guy showed up in this car that looked like this guy, but we don't have a through line. Yeah. But that brings me to my last theory and suspect. So in 2011, a new piece of evidence emerged. Okay. They finally found... Well, because there's still that missing hair. That missing hair. Who is the guy in Archibald's car that's not Gacy, that's not Chris Bush, that's not anybody else? Exactly. So in 2011, a DNA match popped up for that hair. Oh, cool. So they were looking at it. Uh, New hairs discovered on one of the victims led investigators to a suspect who was never named before. And they've linked that hair to a man who was living in Kalamazoo, Missouri. A man by the name of James Vincent uh, Gunnels. Okay. Um, The police said that the hairs found on the victims and in Sloan's car matched the 49-year-old Gunnels. Ooh, so he's the third man. He's the third man. Or in this case, as we've now established, like the, the fifth, sixth man. Fifth or yeah. sixth man. <laughs> so uh, they got a whole fucking basketball team. Gunnels had a long history of property crimes and was in police custody for a while for squatting. Okay. And just like dipping from one state, popping up in another state, dipping in one state, popping in another state. And he was living in a halfway house in Kalamazoo when they made this DNA match. So police believe that Gunnels, 16 years at the time of the murders, was part of a group involved in the killings. This is all in the police report. It's because they're right. Police said Gunnels was also molested by a key suspect in the case. Oh, speaking of which, the letter. Yeah. We haven't talked about the letter yet. Yeah. That's why you waited. I get yeah. it. All right, yeah, talk about the letter. So, a few weeks after King's murder, psychiatrists who worked with the task force received a letter riddled with spelling errors written by anonymous author by the name Allen, claiming to be a sadomasochist slave to the killer Frank. Allen wrote that they had both served in the Vietnam War and that Frank was traumatized by having killing children and that Frank had taken revenge on the more affluent citizens, such as the residents of Birmingham and the Oakland County, for sending forces to Vietnam. 
Allen expressed fear and remorse in his letter, saying he was losing his sanity and was endangered and suicidal, and admitted to have accompanied Frank as the latter sought to kill uh, to kill boys. He instructed the psychiatrist to respond by printing the code words, Weather Bureau says trees to bloom in three weeks, and that Sunday's edition of the Detroit Free Press, before offering to provide photographic evidence at the exchange for immunity from prosecution. The psychiatrist arranged to meet Alan at a bar, but Alan did not show up and was never heard from again. So you think that there's a chance that Alan was actually Gunnels? Gunnels, because... And Bush was Frank? Police said that Gunnels was molested by a key suspect in the case, Chris Bush. Interesting. Okay. Well, fuck. Well, the only question there, though, is did Bush serve in Vietnam? He did not. Yeah, because I felt like that would have come up when we were looking it up. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Chris Bush did not serve in Vietnam, and uh, Gunnels, being 16 at the time of the murders, was too young to serve in Vietnam. Oh, so there's a chance that it was all just a lie. I mean, it definitely feels like, I mean, I don't want to put myself in anybody's shoes necessarily, but it definitely feels like back then it would have been a, a, a believable excuse to say that Vietnam made me this way. Yes. Especially when it came to, like, a cruelty towards children. And that feels more like a thing that two killers would justify to each other. It's, like, kind of what we were just talking about with there being, like, a group sharing a cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and being, like, well, we all agree that this one thing, you know? I don't know, man. Maybe. Could it have been... Did uh, Could Frank have been uh, Pogo the Clown? Could it have been John Wayne Gacy? It, Gacy's old enough. He could have served in Vietnam. Gacy could have been... Uh, what I believe is that I do believe that Chris was Frank and uh, Gunnels was Alan, but I think he was adding little white lies to kind of justify it, to give himself more leniency. Especially if you were like, if you felt that amount of guilt and you were trying to share that guilt, yeah. I could definitely see I'll that. I'll be like, this is the reason why we're doing this. If you meet, I'll give you evidence, and I just ask for immunity. But what I believe happened is everyone else in the group found out that he had sent in this letter and they're like, we'll take care of it ourselves, suicided Chris, and they all dispersed. And I mean, if you're someone that is pivotal in the murder of someone you were close to and you know that there's these four other dudes that are willing to murder to cover themselves up, why wouldn't you pop around the country squatting and hiding yourself for years? I mean, he was basically hiding for 35 years. Laying low, squatting, popping up, laying low, squatting, popping up. That sounds like a man on the run. Yeah, absolutely. And not on the run from police, on the run from the other people in this group. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Yeah, there's a very good chance. So that's my theory. I like that theory. My theory ties all these theories together, and that's my theory. And that brings us to your theory. Well, yeah, which is always the most fun part of the show, (laughs) because I'm a crazy guy. Uh, Yeah, well, I I will... what I'd like to do, I think that that's a very believable theory. I think in the grand, as Dr. Strange would put it, in the grand calculus of the cosmos, I think that that theory is probably the most accurate one and the most likely. I think there's probably something working that direction, but the really, the thing that sticks out in my mind that won't go away is who killed Chris. And Chris was killed in such a um, professional manner, and there was so little follow-up that my, my little tinfoil-covered heart can't help but immediately go to the government. And if my brain goes to the government around this time, what do I think of? Well, the first thing I think of is Project Montauk. Um, For those of you who don't know what Project Montauk was, or maybe never was, allegedly was, it's what inspired uh, Stranger Things, actually. Um, 
Project Montauk was allegedly a follow-up project to uh, Project Rainbow, otherwise known as the Philadelphia Experiment. And the Philadelphia Experiment was two experiments that were done um, in the 1950s, in a, or in the 1940s, rather, in an effort to try to make a warship invisible to radar using nothing but psychic energy, and uh, to time travel using that same psychic energy. And um, allegedly, they did make the ship disappear from radar in the first experiment. And in the second experiment that happened that fall, they uh, they managed to get the ship, the USS Eldridge, which we'll do a whole episode on the Eldridge at yeah. some point because it's a fascinating story. But they apparently got the ship to move back in time about three seconds. Um, and the story here is that they've been working. Project Montauk was their way to sort of, in doing so, um, Matter got mixed up. This sounds like a Meow Wolf story, but Matter got mixed up, and some of the men merged with the walls of the ship um, and were pretty brutally killed by that. And in an effort to try to stop that from happening, Project Montauk was a project that was taken on um, as a in a branch of the CIA as a way to uh, see if there were any... to further the understanding of psychic time travel and then to see if there was a way that they could go back in time to try to stop that experiment from happening when it did so that they could stop those men from dying. Uh, and in case you are wondering, uh, the ship was summarily sold off immediately and yep. then to scrap in yep. a way that never, ever happens with warships like that. We always turn them into memorials. We always keep them around. That one got turned into scrap, but that's a different story for a different time. <laughs> uh, now, that being said, Project Montauk was allegedly a bunch of children sort of being effectively kidnapped by the government. We have to remember that while the government does some really sketchy shit, need I remind you of the unmarked vans in 2020 just picking people up off the street, regardless of where the fuck you land, wherever on the political company, if you think that's cool, you're an idiot because you shouldn't let anybody come and take you no. regardless. Um, and now the government, that's the more tame side of the U.S. government. The U.S. government has done a lot of shit when we talk about MK Ultra and the mind control experiments and a lot of like really unethical, traumatizing experiments with humans and with animals and stuff. That was all happening during this time period. Mm -hmm. So, so I do not find it hard to believe that... <sighs> Some of these children were being picked up and that they were being uh, used as psychic soldiers. Uh, I know, I know, but bear with me. I think it's not entirely unbelievable also that maybe they were using some of these psychic soldiers to maybe find some of these kids. Because uh, they did do that back then. They, would, they still use psychics to try to find people when they're missing. Um, but they would use kids pretty often, and a lot of these kids from uh, the Montauk Project allege that. Now, there's one of the most outspoken is a kid named, or a kid, he's now passed, he died in 2019, but a psychic by the name of Duncan Cameron, and his brother, his brother, listen to me, his brother, his brother, <laughs> um, Ed, who now goes by um, Al Bybe, or Bilek, mm -hmm. he's, he had his mind wiped, allegedly, so they allege that like I said, we'll do an episode on all of this because there's a lot of fun stuff there. But they allege that there were a lot of really intense psychic um, experiments that were being done that were causing trans, uh, causing you know transportation and all kinds of wild shit. But that's not really what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that these children were left to be seen. They were to be found. That was the goal. They were to be found, and all of them died in relatively comfortable manners. Yep. And they were taken care of before they died. If those especially the two female victims, those girls were healthy, clean, in the clothes they were in, and hadn't been sexually assaulted or assaulted in any way. Yep. So what the fuck happened for the few days they were gone? And why were they murdered? And why did it take that long to happen? I think that it's a possibility that all four of these kids over the course of that year were a series of experiments that went awry, and the government, I, to say that you died from... 
there's a lot of asphyxiation as a way, like suffocation as a way to die. It just means that your uh, your breathing, your breathways were blocked when you died. Mm-hmm. That can mean so many things. Yeah. When Bon Scott puked himself to death in the back of a cab, and then subsequently drowned on that vomit. He died of the same thing. Yes. He died of asphyxiation. When the lead singer of In Excess killed himself j- jerking off with a bag over his head, yeah. he died of the same thing. It, asphyxia just means your brain didn't get oxygen. Exactly. And that can come from so many things. That can come from a, 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 an aneurysm. It can come from a lot of things. So to write it off as they were being murdered feels extremely comfortable given the climate of people that were around. And I know that the government is significantly more in tune and paying more attention to what we're doing now. But if you don't think that they had any inclination that any of these child murders were going on again, this was said in Detroit, like it was this new thing in 1976, but Gacy had been killing children since 72. Yeah. So like it's, and what, Oh, cause it was in Iowa and Illinois. It's different. Like that's the what's that saying about how you can't see an elephant from right up on its nose? Yeah, that's how that feels to me. Like can't I, see the forest through the trees. Yeah, and I think that I think that the the job of somebody like the CIA is to see the entire forest. Mm-hmm. That's their job. They let local police departments focus on the trees. They handle it all. So I have a hard time believing with all the spare time and funding they have that they didn't have an ear to the ground on some of this stuff. And there's a lot of people who think that most serial killers are psyops. I don't know that I'm going to go that far. That feels a little too living in a simulation type shit. Yeah. But that being said, I don't find it entirely impossible to believe that these children might have just been the tail end of an experiment that the government was working on. For all we know, you know, like teleportation, right? Okay, so the the kid seemingly was just missing for a couple days, nothing wrong. That sounds a lot like teleportation to me. Sounds like the kid went somewhere. Did you guys not see the Marvel movies? The kid just blipped for four days. And if uh, this kid teleported uh, or, like, was doing some sort of psychic ability, focusing on brain power very hard... You could cause an aneurysm. You yep. could cause yourself to not get oxygen to the brain. Absolutely. Causing this asphyxia. And the one kid that was shot in the face, I mean, gosh, don't have a great track record with shooting people. Yeah, yeah. So if one got a little unruly, maybe was using telepathy. I mean, like I said, or like you said, this is what Stranger Things is based off of. Like, it's quite literally this? what it's based on. It's like, we've never, we've talked about harp and stuff yeah. before. Uh, we don't, we're funny because we don't always dive way into the deep end of traditional conspiracies. But yeah, like, it's, Project Montauk has been a thing that people have talked about for, and there are so many people that have alleged to have been a part of it. Like, there are a dozen people who said that they, it's funny, like time engineers yeah. and programmers and stuff, like mental programmers, because that's a lot of what they were trying to do there. They were basically trying to turn telepathy it, through radio signals. Like, this shit is real. Yeah. Just to be clear, like, Stranger Things not entirely real, but the experiments they were doing were real, and what they were trying to do is they were trying to turn your thoughts and your telepathic, because there is, you know, there is obviously there's vibrational radiation that, mm-hmm. that emanates from your brain when you do that. And they were trying to make that into communication, basically like uh, quantify it, quantify the different frequencies and then turn it into something you can communicate with. And if you can communicate with it, because anything can become a language, if you can communicate with it. Okay. Now can we use it for something else? Yeah. And that's all they were really trying to do there. And if you were, listen, man, I've had my fair share of psychedelics. And if you, gave like a 12 year old a ton of psilocybin and said, go for, you know, do some psychic exercise. I would not be surprised if that kid somehow wound up asphyxiated. Yeah. Yeah. I know that sounds kind of cynical, but I just wouldn't be that surprised because 
the things that it can convince you you can do and like the, the type of mental the vibration like people talk about nirvana and they talk about seeking that shit all the time and i'm not going to get to like dmt joe rogany on the podcast but you know how i feel about psilocybin yeah and there's you know when you're when monks they've they've scanned monks brains um and the frequency that their brains are operating at when they're in like deep meditation when they've sought nirvana is the same as when you're on mushrooms mm -hmm. and it just naturally happens when you're on mushrooms because that's what happens to your brain so if you were to incor incorporate some of that stuff lsd was invented not but you know not even 10 years really before this and like popularized yeah. you know ken kesey was driving around the country with it in a big <laughs> gatorade container full of kool-aid I just don't think it's unbelievable to think that if you were playing now we don't give LSD to kids because we know what it is. But if you used to think that it might be some sort of maybe super serum, you might give a kid a, like a tab and see what happens. I'm pretty sure if you did that, there's a decent chance that kid's physiology is going to melt down. Yeah. So I don't find it entirely unbelievable that these kids could have been the byproduct of pretty brutal experiments that we know did exist. The only hole in my theory is that they didn't specifically exist as we know in Detroit. Most of this allegedly happened out at Camp Hero, which is, that's the base at the end of uh, Long Island. It's at Montauk. That's why it's called Project Montauk. It's there to see the ships that are coming. It's the only place, I believe it's the only place during World War II where we actually saw something. Because mm -hmm. they saw a German submarine, I yeah. believe, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's like... Uh, there are a little, there are a couple holes in this, but I also find it hard to believe that if the government's doing this, they're only doing it out on Long Island. You know, yeah, like and I was gonna pick <laughs> that and be like, I mean, we have. I'm not sure when standardized testing was first introduced, but I'm pretty sure it was already a thing so in if, the 70s. It was, yeah. Yeah. So if you have standardized testing across the nation, and that's a way to gauge people, uh, gauge children's acuity. And you're doing a project that focuses on the acuity of children and enhancing that acuity. Yeah. If you have kids around the country that score high enough, oops, now you're a super soldier. Yep. Now you're, now you've disappeared. Yeah. Because a lot of these kids were good kids and they were all real smart kids. They were all kids that their parents trusted, you know, and yeah. I don't trust the government, especially in the seventies, not enough to just snatch them kids up. Yeah. Of course they'd take those kids. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. Of course they'd take those kids. You should see what they do to the kids in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. But I... As much so as I didn't I mean to kill theory. it. There. I didn't mean no. to hurt the theory there. It's just true, though. Ask, as much as I like ask your, your local vet. <laughs> as much as I like my theory, your theory does. I think it like, has some grip. I think your theory fits in the like greater. As we understand justice and we understand how people operate, it feels like Chris Bush did this. However, Chris still we still have a mystery at the end of that, which is who killed Chris. And if we have a mystery of who killed Chris, kills he was killed in such a precise way that I have a hard time believing it wasn't somebody who didn't have a familiarity in doing so mm -hmm. and a familiarity in um, making sure that it was the end of the story. Because, guys, the car was there. We don't know that it was his car. The car was there. There was a picture. There were bloody ligatures. The guy was tucked in. He was a wrapped up package with a bow on it for the police mm -hmm. to say, this is the solution to all of your problems. And we hadn't talked about it too much. We touched on the fact that Tim King's dad pushed really, really hard. But Tim King's dad also pushed really, really hard for them to go after Chris Bush. Yeah. And was pushing really hard for them to go after Chris Bush until the day he was found having allegedly killed himself. So I hate to push it onto the, I'm saving till the very end to push it onto the dad there because I feel a tremendous amount of grief for him. I understand, yeah. but also 
it kind of feels like maybe the dad killed this motherfucker when he found out what happened and he was like, oh, cool, I'm going to go kill his ass. Yeah. And it was like, please, you should go check on that guy. You should go check on knowing he had already killed him. And yeah, it was like, and you should check on him. I mean, that's not an uncommon uncommon thing for parents to take justice in their own hands. I'm forgetting the name of him right now, but there was uh, that there was a pretty notorious uh, child killer that was walking his way to the courtroom and uh, the father of one of his victims was pretending to be on the payphone. Yeah. Turned around and just shot, shot him. him. Yeah. When he was walking, the, the look on the cop's face is so funny because the cop's like, oh, God damn it. Oh, God damn it. Well, he yeah. just has this like really resigned look like what when he sees and realizes what happens, he like sees the dad and he sees the guy. He's like, oh, Oh, God damn it. <laughs> We're supposed to... You so, really yeah. ruined this, Terry. So so uh, a parent bringing justice into their own hands wouldn't surprise me. Oh, yeah. I honestly think it's the most believable yeah. of all these stories in regard to Chris Bush, but not in regard to, to the, the four... Yeah. yeah, to the four victims. And in that sense, I don't know, ma'am. I, I... Given the crew they were running with, given Gacy, given everybody involved in this situation... For these four kids to not have been involved in something larger, I know my it's probably just my proportional bias telling me this, but they feel too insignificant. And I, you know, I'm hesitating to say this because it feels so callous to say. It's such a true crime thing to say. But it feels like these crimes were almost too insignificant to fit into the greater scheme of what was going on, which is why they feel like little copycat crimes to me. It feels like somebody copying Big Daddy, yeah. you know, like they emulating what, what Gacy did because we still don't know the extent of what Gacy did. We still don't know the extent of the people that he worked with. Like the guy died in '94. Mm -hmm. Like it's not. This was a very recent case. Yeah. So I think that there will probably still be more to be learned about this one, including who killed Chris Bush. I like to think that it had to do with Project Montauk, which I guess now we'll just do a whole episode on so yeah. we can talk about Project Rainbow and all that stuff because there really is some wild shit in there. Until then, I definitely suggest that you look it up. Look up Duncan Cameron and look up a few of the other psychics that, uh, uh, like Al, Al it's B-I-E-L-E-K, Belek. Um, that's his brother, Ed, apparently. Um and yeah, what they have to say is pretty interesting, and we'll we'll cover that. I guess we'll probably do that in a couple weeks, yeah. Since it's a it's a fun case, but uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, either way, you know, it's it's a sad story. It's a shame that these children went missing. I like to I like to think in my heart of hearts that it was some weird government conspiracy. Because at least I don't know. I think I do that because I like to. I'm already afraid of the government, so it's like the monster that I know mm -hmm. versus the one I don't. You know. But yeah, let us know what you guys think in the comments. Let us know what you think happened to those kids and let us know if you think it was a, a Project Montauk, Stranger Things style, uh, burning little kids' brains out and causing them to, to short circuit by making them into little psychic weapons. Or do you think that this was a case of a, sort of a copycat guy or maybe one of Gacy's friends picking kids off at a much lower level? Let us know what you think. And by all means, like I said at the beginning, this is going to be hella suppressed. So if you did like this episode, please do share it with your friends. Let them know. Uh, like it. Leave a comment. Uh, if, if you could, if only because it'll it'll help push it through the uh, the old algorithm. Although that's not really why we do this. We yeah. just we no, do this because it's fun. fun. Yeah, we got we've got our two hundred. We love you guys more than <laughs> anybody else. You know, may we never get any more followers. Don't you even fucking think about su subscribing? Don't you dare. But but you feel free to like the video. <laughs> all right. Well, with all that said, uh, for those who don't know, this is uh, the time of the podcast where I get to check out. This is my favorite time of the podcast. No, this is when uh, this is when Caleb. What do you do? You. Uh, you challenge the, the I listeners. I challenge the listeners. Yeah. I challenge listeners. Little, uh, 
little mind acuity test of yeah. my own. So I hey, can you've been left. your house and kidnap you so I can make you make my car disappear for a couple seconds. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make you into a super soldier. I'm going to keep you in my basement where you can only talk to ghosts through a phone. Seriously, go see the black phone. Go it's fantastic. Anyway, riddle time. Yes. So last episode's riddle was the 22nd and 24th president of a corporation were born from the same father and the same mother. However, they were not brothers. How is this possible? They're the same fucking guy. Same guy. And that guy is Grover Cleveland. Grover <laughs> Cleveland was the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. Uh, he was born of the same parents, and it's because he's the same guy. <laughs> uh, this week's riddle, uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan... You might know the answer to this riddle because it comes from Lord of the Rings, the book. Um, <laughs> That's so specifically. You fucking movie dorks. So this riddle is, this thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, and flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones into meal. It slays kings, it ruins towns, and beats, down, er, and beats the mountains down. What is it? Leave your comment. Let us know what you think. Tell us what the answer is. I think I know that one. That's why I said it all weird, because I've done that before. I don't know the riddles before he asked them, and I, I definitely spoiled it once, and I immediately said the answer to the riddle. So just shouted it Just out. shouted it out. Like, I wasn't sitting here doing a podcast with him for an hour before that. I was like, oh, I know that one! Ridiculous stuff. It's uh, We've been doing this bit. We're going to close out here in just a second, but we've been doing this bit. There's uh, Superman with autism. It's... Superman, you got to stop that train. There's there's people on that train. What kind of twain is it? And with that said, <laughs> we love you guys very much.